Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by Great Joe's, a startup that makes the cookware that I use and love at home. Upgrading your kitchen tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. And it's also a great gift to give Great Jones cookware as a gift this holiday season. You can even get Great Jones designs engraved, a very special present. Great Jones products start at $45 and include a ceramic nonstick skillet, a big stainless steel stock pot, and a colorful Dutch oven that looks as good as it works. When's the last time you replace your pots and pans? It's important. Go to greatjones.com and use the code Dave at checkout for 15% off. That's a fantastic deal. And I literally just used the Dutch oven. I love it. It's great for braises. And again, it's great to cook in and then serve out of. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware. Great gift, guys, for the holiday season. Trust me, everyone that you care about would love to have this. Or even yourself, if you buy yourself a Christmas gift. It's a great 15% discount. Again, greatjones.com. Promo code DAVE, D-A-V-E, for 15% off. Today's show is also brought to you by Airbnb. You can get a real taste of what it means to eat like a local with cooking experiences on Airbnb. They're a great way to make and eat traditional meals with those who know them best. Roll pasta with an Italian grandma or make ancient mole recipes with a healer in Mexico City. You don't need to stay in an Airbnb home to book an experience. Check out airbnb.com slash cooking to learn more. And now the Dave Chang Show. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. We have a great guest today. We have the journalist, author, Charlotte Druckmann. I will get into her introduction in a bit. I uh, wanted to start off by saying thank you to everyone that supported our restaurants the past year, from Australia to Toronto to Washington, D.C. to Las Vegas. The New York Times LA critic, Tejo Rao, gave us a wonderful shout out for her top 10 dishes that she ate in Los Angeles as the California critic. And uh, our boiled chicken at Major Domo won one of those recognitions amongst other amazing dishes in Los Angeles. And it's a dish I'm really proud of. It's something that we've sort of been working on for almost four years. And the iteration seems really simple. And sometimes it takes a long time to make something seem really simple. But we brine the chicken. We trust the chicken. We steam boil the chicken. We serve the chicken breast on a bed of seasoned rice with two sauces of chili black bean and ginger scallion. And then we pick the rest of the bird, the dark meat, and then we add sujebi and we add other seasonal garnishes. And it's a dish that I never thought would actually resonate with people. So I'm extremely happy and proud that people like it a lot. And again, thank you to the entire team at Major Domo Los Angeles. They've done a great job. And um, having eaten there recently, last time I was in LA, just as a guest, I was so happy. So to Jude, to Mark Johnson, to Christine, and uh, everyone at Major Domo, thank you. Um, Pete Wells, the New York Times critic for New York City, gave us a great write-up for his top 10 dishes, and it was the clam suit at Bar Wyo. 
And I was really happy about that too, because that's something we've been working on for, you know, ever since we opened up Momofuku in 2004. And it's almost like a jogetang, a Korean clam soup, a asari no suimono, which is like a Japanese clear soup, a Rhode Island clam chowder with a dashi made with Benton's bacon instead of katsuo. And the way that the team at Wyo and Sam Kang have executed that dish and really fine-tuned it means a lot to me that it is getting the recognition and and the whole team there has done a great job. And Eater, um, which obviously has a national presence, the New York City Eater staff, and in addition to that, Ryan Sutton, the chief critic, gave Kawi, our restaurant at Hudson Yards, their restaurant of the year for 2019, restaurants that open up in the calendar year. And I encourage you guys to listen to the pre-opening diaries again, where Unjo Park, the executive chef, there has been getting a lot of recognition. She was honored by Jeff Gordonier uh, for the Esquire as one of his best new restaurants. And it was also named in Pete Wells' top 10 restaurants that opened up in 2019. Really proud of what Unjo's done and Arako, the general manager. We should do a post-opening diaries soon with them and, and just sort of catch up where they're at. I want to listen to the pre-opening diaries again just to see and chart the growth of what Unjo's done. I think the food at Kawi is really remarkable and incredibly personal and tells the story of Korean-American cooking. And I don't even know what that would be like growing up having that available. So it's an, a wildly important restaurant to me as a Korean-American. And even if you're not, it's very delicious by someone that's insanely talented. And you should listen to also the pre-opening diaries with Sam Kang as well. Um, before I get in the podcast with Charlotte Druckmann, uh, wanted to do my own quick roundup just off the top of my head. Some of the things I love the most this year uh, was it traveling a lot for filming TV shows and whatnot and got to spend some time in Istanbul, a place that I've always wanted to visit. And I, there were some other places I wanted to go to but could not go because I had to stay close to home because of the birth of our child, Hugo. So I didn't get to go to all the places that were planned, but I did get to go to Istanbul and got to go to a place called, and forgive me for butchering this, Bayern Glue Donair. I can't do that. And Zubir Okabasi. Again, please forgive me for butchering that. I cannot pronounce it properly. And uh, I wish I could because... Truly wonderful restaurants. The Donaire shop did around a couple thousand a day. I think there's two shops doing around the same numbers in Istanbul. And um, it's just a wonderful place, man. You, you sit down and you just go to town eating something delicious. And you're basically just, it's almost like not all you can eat, but you pay as you go and you're just getting more Donaire slices. Uh, just beautiful stuff. And I put on Instagram the the Zubir, the open grill restaurant, Okabasi. Oh God, I can't pronounce it. Anyway, that's Mehmet's like favorite go-to place. And it's a, a place that is a good mix of tourists and locals. And I had just never seen a restaurant where you can eat right at the grill. And my favorite thing that happens in a restaurant, and this is what happened here, is when other diners that don't know each other are sharing in their booze and sharing in their food and just celebrating and I think it is a celebration of life. As serious as that sounds, it was one of the most amazing dining experiences I've ever had. In Japan, I had some amazing sushi at Sugita and Anamoto. 
places that are hard to get into. And I'm always reluctant to talk about eating internationally, but we get a lot of comments from listeners being like, please give us places to at least go to or try to get in. I think they're both two Michelin star sushiyas. It's hard to say who's the best sushiya. You know, most people would say Saito in Tokyo right now, but for different reasons, Sugita and Anamoto were just stupendous. And, uh, I would say locally in New York, I thought one of the best meals I had in a long time and wildly underrated was Kish Cash, where they make homemade couscous and tagines, now that I know how to pronounce that properly. And one of my mentors and good friends, Jonathan Benno, opened up Benno, the restaurant that got three stars and one of the top ratings by Pete Wells as well in the New York Times. And Leonelli, uh, he opened up a, the more casual restaurant and they have a bakery as well. Really wonderful. Check it out. In Los Angeles, I really didn't get to go out as much, but recently I got to check out Onda in Santa Monica, opened up by Gabriel Camara and Jessica Cazzo. Both of them have been on our podcast last year. Check it out. Onda is a terrific restaurant. And two dishes that I had there were just knocked me on my ass. They have a turkey quesadilla that's like an inside out one. And I've had it two times. It was that good. And the koji sweet potato, which is more of an entree, it's just so wonderful to see something so smart with something that's a humble ingredient like the sweet potato with all this umami and flavor and texture coaxed out of it. Wonderful, amazing dish. Check out Onda. My go-to in LA during editing and a lot of the production meetings for Ugly Delicious, and for breakfast, lunch, and dinner is Lupita Tamales Authentic. I ate there a lot, just getting some tamal to go. They always run out of some of the the flavors that are common, but it's tremendous. And I also tell you that their chilaquiles are pretty fucking good. So that's Lupita Tamales Authentic. And the meal that I probably had a lot because I'm good friends with them and another guest of our podcast a couple times over is Josh Keens, who opened up Angler LA. I don't know what to tell you other than I thought it was stupendous and the quality of ingredients and the level of execution and the sourcing is just something that uh, there is no comparison in Los Angeles as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I had a terrific couple meals there. When you have one of the great chefs America's ever produced in terms of talent and execution and vision and real original voices, to have him in Los Angeles has been a real win for the town. But I'd say the thing that I did eat the most, actually, the thing I go for lunch quite a bit in Los Angeles, Spoon by H, obviously, with Yunjin's. I'm just so happy that she's gotten all the acclaim that she deserves. She's a real savant, and she's fallen into cooking later in her life. But I think she's a tremendous talent, and I am so ecstatic that she's getting all the recognition she deserves. I think she is a real—I don't want to put more pressure on her, but, man, she is incredibly special. And the way she's able to conjure flavors and do some things that are unorthodox and to break sort of the traditional bounds of what Korean food can be in American context is something I've never seen before. And, and she's a, a special talent. But the thing that I had the most in Los Angeles this year was Park's Barbecue. It's been my go-to, but the thing that I think has gotten better over the years is the gochujang jjigae. Um, a lot of Korean barbecue spots, they don't really highlight the fact that they have amazing soups because of all the beef scraps. And I don't think there's a better broth uh, <laughs> that I've had on a consistent basis than the broth that is made at Park's. 
And while the naengmyeon is delicious, the thing that I go for the most, especially for lunch, is just getting a bowl of the gochujang jjigae. It's spicy. It's got potatoes. It's very, very hearty. But there's nothing like it as far as I'm concerned in terms of flavor. And I don't know why, but it just tastes like Los Angeles to me. So two more things off the top of my head about where I, I really had great meal. We, I did an impromptu trip I spoke about it on the podcast a few months ago to Austin, Texas. There was a layover. We wound up going to Suerte. The team there is doing outstanding work. A lot of dishes that I've never had before, the, the, the fresh uh, nixtamal corn and how they're implementing that in Austin is truly cool, man. It's cool to have a place that is sort of uncompromising in what they do and, and it's packed and rightfully so. It's, it's fun and it's delicious. And I finally got to go to Smitty's. I, I've been to Black's in Lockhart in Kreutz's, but I've never been to Smitty's. And uh, what a cool place, man. And I just wish we had more restaurants like it where it's almost like going back in time a little bit. And it's a kind of service, serve yourself type of atmosphere that I really grew up admiring at places like Hot Shop and stuff like that with my grandparents. And I don't know why, but I never thought that I would love that kind of dining as much as I do now as I get older in age. But I thought Smitty's was just really cool. And Austin's got it going on. I have talked way longer than I wanted to. Anyway, our next guest is Charlotte Druckmann, as I said. Charlotte has written or edited four books, including a cookbook with the great Anita Lowe, highly underrated chef, one of the great chefs of New York City. She's also written Stir, Sizzle, Bake, which is a fantastic resource for cast iron skillet cooking. I've always... I wanted her and Evan Kleiman to write a book about small oven cooking. Hopefully, they'll do that one day, not as a joke, but seriously. But the two books that Charlotte's probably best known for are Skirt Steak and her latest book, Women on Food, which both deal with the subject of fairness and equality in the food world, especially when it comes to women chefs and women in food media. She's probably put more thought into the subject than anyone else in food media that I know of. As a result, she has incredibly nuanced views and opinions about it and practical solutions that we should all learn from. I mean, no matter how much you think you understand or care about the subject, Charlotte, I think will change your viewpoint or give you more perspectives. She's a good friend of mine and my wife, and uh, she's someone whose opinion I really trust. And she's also one of the great bakers. She has a nose for where things are delicious in this world. And she's never been afraid to criticize me to my face. Sometimes I don't like it, but I always appreciate it because she's a straight shooter. And uh, I think the world needs more Charlotte Druckmann. So I will shut up. Here is Charlotte Druckmann. I have Charlotte Druckmann, author, journalist, have published what two books? Two cookbooks or three cookbooks? Two books, one cookbook with another one on the way. Got it. So <laughs> you've done a lot of books. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you write you write for a bunch of places, right? Yeah. Like right now, I think probably I write mostly for Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and a little bit for the New York Times and Food and wine, but I, I like to write for lots of different places. 
like a true freelancer. Yeah, I am very much a true freelancer because I get bored. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't be put in the box of like one brand of a publication. And the two books you've written, one is called Skirt Steak. Yes. With a longer title. What was yeah. This is kind of corny. It's Skirt Steaks, Women Chefs on Standing the Heat and Staying in the Kitchen. Which is about? About women women chefs. And your most recent book that just came out, an anthology, an unconventional anthology called Women on Food. Yes. And why is it so unconventional? It's unconventional because it is not a book of essays. Um, it is, it includes essays and everything that was done for the book was, is original. It's all original material. So it's not like the best of the essays that came out last year in a book. It's everything is, was completely made for this book. And it's a mix of essays, a lot of which in themselves are not necessarily conventional, um, food topics or ways of writing about those topics. Uh, There are interviews, and then there are all of these, I don't know what to call them. I call them different things all the time, but maybe call them call-in responses, where I developed this crazy questionnaire, and I sent it out to a lot of women who work in the food industry in different areas of the food industry, and I gathered all their answers. So you have these kind of interludes where a question is asked of them, and then you see a whole bunch of their responses. And there's some visual essays. And it's also, I mean, I, I cannot take credit for this. It's gorgeously designed. Um, the designer's name is He Song Lee. I want everyone to know her name because I think she's really talented. And um, so in that sense, it's also not conventional. It doesn't look like your typical anthology. It's really beautiful. It's just fun to look at. Um, my goal was, can you create a book that you could put on a coffee table but would want to take to the beach? How do you do that? And it was also ahead of its time. People weren't talking about women chefs. Well, that's that's what I wanted to get to yeah. is, you know, we've known each other a long time now. Yeah. Um, and what I love about Charlotte is she's not afraid to be critical to my face and to be open about it, about <laughs> things she approves or disapproves of. And I've always taken that constructive criticism to heart. Um, but she's someone that, has been vocal about, would you say, uh, representation isn't the right word, I would say, um, equal footing, <laughs> equality in the culinary, like, media? Yeah. I, we could just say fairness. Fairness. There it is. <laughs> I say fairness. Thank God. Yeah. That's why you read the books. Um, fairness. And you have always been one of the loudest voices and advocates for fairness um, for women, particularly women in restaurants and how uh, women chefs are represented. And why do you think it took the Me Too movement for people to be like, yes, we're ready for this? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the Me Too movement, if you look at what really catapulted it, was something that happened outside of food, right? It was it was the Harvey Weinstein story. I mean, things had been bubbling up before then, but it took Hollywood. It took someone so big to get taken down, essentially, before then everyone started saying, oh, right, you could say Me Too applies not just to the Me Too of 
women in general, but women in industries. So it was different industries started gathering forces and saying, you know, us too, we too in our industry. Um, so I think that's a little bit of it. But I also just think it was, I think it's a zeitgeist thing. You know, I don't think it's accidental that the Harvey Weinstein story broke when it did. I think that people were starting to feel it. I actually think that the election was a huge part of it because I think so many women registered the loss, Hillary Clinton's loss of that election, in, in a way that started galvanizing a lot of anger, um, and particularly Trump's victory. You know, it wasn't just Hillary's loss. It was his victory. Um, and so I think some of it was kind of like beginning to bubble up, and it just hit. And the interesting part is that I think the food industry is probably – restaurant industry is one of the worst offenders, right? It was one of the least policed places and the most sexist. And so, you know, as soon as it hit the food world, it really hit. Um, but well, I you guess, were trying to talk about these issues yeah. for many years. Yeah. It, I was thinking about this. If I was Charlotte Druckmann, I would be so much more angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean— I don't know. This is a really weird thing. This is a lot to do with, you know, ego, ego related no, stuff. Though. But no, no, but I think it was funny because after I did skirt steak for a while, anytime there was anything related to women chefs, it was like, oh, we'll ask Charlotte. Or similarly, you know, you would see the same women chefs asked over and over, which I always said did nothing to help people's idea that there were only five women chefs. <laughs> I mean, like, let's just ask the same three. And it's like, of course, you don't think there are any women chefs. You only talk to three of them. Um, and I would get kind of annoyed. And I'd be like, oh, now I'm going to be stuck. Now this is going to be the thing, my only thing that I do. And as I said before, I get bored. So I'm not really that interested in just doing one thing. I get upset about lack of fairness in all sorts of ways. And there are lots of things I get inspired by. So I was a little bummed. I was like, oh, and I'm going to be the go-to girl, like the poster child for anything. And then there was a lull. <laughs> and then— um, Cookbooks? No, no. I mean, there was a lull in terms of people even wanting to talk about it, right? And then, and I did cookbooks, and I wrote about other things, and, and I was very happy to do it. Um but then I think it started first with the gods of food. And I was like, nobody asked me. What the fuck? You know, there are all, all of these other. There are so, these- so this is where it gets funny yeah. because of all these critical moments that Charlotte <laughs> talks about. Uh, having read your books and a lot of the things you say, I'm oftentimes criticized for associations. Yeah. I was on the cover of I'm, Gods of Food. I know. And I just remember being like, Humph, you know, there are all of these women being asked that with their thoughts on that issue, and, and no one asked me. And I thought, wait a second, I literally wrote the book. And that was the first time where I felt any kind of resentment about it. But I also felt like, okay, I did the work. The work is there. I think what frustrates me actually most of all is less to do with whether or not people associate me with that work, but the fact that. One thing I can say for that book, I asked a lot of questions that I think people still haven't quite started to ask. Like, if you go back to that book, I was really looking at systemic issues and the infrastructure of things and trying to get at sort of the logic of how we got here and not just what it looks like at face value. And so that that is frustrating to me, not even for the credit. It's that I need people to ask those kinds of questions. Well, I think it was important. 
I don't think in 2019 you can still answer that. It's a harder question. It's really hard. It's still really hard. But I do think that's, for me, the frustration is less that people don't come to me and think that I'm a guru. It's more that you guys still aren't asking those questions, and I asked them, what was that now seven years ago? And and if you had to sort of summarize, so if someone wants to go back and read it or buy Skirt Steak, which is why I do believe it's it's somewhat of a companion to this new anthology you just published, what would be the core question you want everyone to know, to answer, to ask themselves? I guess, I mean, this is a very general way to look at it, but I think we confuse causes and symptoms a lot. And I think what that book tried to do was separate those two things and say, let's really look at the cause. Let's not take the symptom as the answer because it's not, right? The symptom being we don't see any women chefs, so then we assume there are no women chefs. Let's go back and look at why you would think that. Um, And you can ask that question for everything. You can ask it for awards, how awards were shaking out the way awards were shaking out. It's to always go back. It's that sort of like follow the money or follow the criteria set up for certain establishments. Go and look at what those things are and look at how those might have set things in motion that now look a certain way to us and have become a norm. That's that's what what that book tried to do. So. 2010, early aughts, yeah. pre-Me Too, what were the criteria, right? Pre-gods yeah. of food of time, yeah. right? I mean, it, it actually, you know, it still hasn't changed that much, I think. A lot of it was that there was this idea that unless you had taken a certain path, right, you had a certain trajectory in your career and you had had certain experiences, And most of those had to do with a a French-based training, and that meant in technique, but also in a certain type of restaurant. Um, It could mean culinary school. It might not. But unless you had gone through a certain process or certain ranks, you were not going to be taken seriously as a chef. And you also weren't going to get access to that kind of—I'm going to call it a fraternity because it was mostly men, but just in terms of that kind of group of people who are going to Sherpa you or the next job you are going to get. Unless you'd had any of that, you probably weren't going to be known. You probably weren't going to make it. And you have to, in that situation, ask, well, is it that there were no women there or is it that— it was set up so that women could never be there in the first place. And then what I always like to ask, why is there only one model? Isn't that so arbitrary? Mm. How do we get to a place where this is the only way you can have a restaurant and that we think the only way you can be a good chef is if this is exactly the pattern that you have followed to get there? And the only thing that I'm seeing that's a little bit different now, and part of this is actually economic, is that this is actually interesting even to go back a little bit to 2010. But when you are a person who has not been welcome in whatever the established path or institution is, usually the only way you can have your own business, make a name for yourself, do anything is you have to create your own, right? You have to have your own restaurant. And usually you 
don't have access to the same resources. You don't have the money and maybe you didn't go to culinary school and maybe so what you're familiar with, how you were taught, how you learned, all of that's different. So the restaurant you end up building is going to look very different than the restaurants that you weren't welcome in, right? And that's how, if you look at it, a lot of the early sort of independent chefy restaurants that opened were actually opened by women um, and by people of color. And I think now what's happening is that those restaurants, that model for a restaurant is becoming more and more, I guess, of interest. People are starting to consider them maybe not on the same level as fine dining restaurants. We're still not quite there yet, but you know, they're open to it. It's become much more trendy. So maybe that's a little different. I don't know. Can I give you an example of someone that was someone as a chef that I didn't understand wasn't um, considered in the top tier ranks by the media? But I do know from her peer group, we all uh, had so much respect and still do. And someone I know you admire tremendously, and that's Anita Lowe. I knew you were going to say that. And when I moved to New York, I remember we were at Cafe Blue, and everyone— it was this 2003. I just came back from Japan. I was like, hey, who is this person? And we were all talking about her uh, black bass uh, with tofu and dashi. And you look at that dish now, and it's still aged well, but it's not as cutting edge as it was. The way all of us line cooks were talking about that dish at a bar, and that's what we would do. We would rip apart dishes and be like, oh, my God, how do you think she came up with this, this, and this? Mm-hmm. We all went there to eat it because we're like, wow, she's fucking badass. Yeah. And then you study her career, right? She went to Columbia. She is not just intelligent. She's got a fierce work ethic. And she worked at Boulay, not the easiest place, and did exactly what you're supposed to do in your career, right? Spend the time, learn your craft, and open up not just an intimate neighborhood restaurant in Anissa, but— Something that was groundbreaking at the time. I get mad when I think about Anissa and Anita Lowe, just like I do about a lot of my male chef friends. She wasn't celebrated enough because it was too good for the time. Yeah. she And they still don't get it, right? Yeah. They still don't get what she did. And how can we prevent mistakes from happening? The same mistakes when we haven't really analyzed what the fuck we did in the past. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think... With Anita, particularly, I think she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. I don't, and do you remember when she had Bar Q, yeah. the restaurant that she opened? Even that, sometimes I'm like, if someone had opened that, like, just three years later, five years later, and maybe also someone who was a guy. Like, I th- do think gender may have had something to do with that, too. Um, and she'll tell you it was bad real estate if you talk to her about it. But, yeah, I, I think— She can cook. She really can cook. And she's also, she's so smart, you know, and she's trying to have a conversation with you through her food, through everything she does. It is so thoughtful. And sometimes I think people don't want to deal with that either. So do you think that, I think about this, it was such an exemplary role model of not just a woman-led restaurant, because I, I don't look at it that way. It's just yeah. a fucking awesome restaurant by an awesome chef. Yeah. And it's so embarrassing by the food media that it didn't get embraced enough that no one wants to talk about it because it's like shame on us. They yeah. don't want to expect, they don't want to admit that they fucked up. 
No, and it's also, it's sort of bittersweet because she's really happy now. When she, the, the interesting thing about Anita, so I co-wrote her cookbook with her and um, I remember even then, so that cookbook came out in 2011, right? But we worked on it for for a while and when we first met, she was already freaking out about retiring. Like she was already freaking out about getting old and in the restaurant industry. And what am I going to do? Because she was one of those chefs who still was on the line every night and she liked it. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do her book with her. I thought if I'm going to have a cookbook experience, I want it to be with a chef who's still cooking because I want to learn. And I don't think at that time in her career, she wasn't interested in not being in the kitchen, right? And she did everything you're supposed to everything do. Everything you're supposed to do. But now, you know, she's sold Anissa and she's not mad about it. Like, she's re- she's really happy. She's traveling. She's hilarious. Yeah, she's like kind of living her best life. So it, that part of it, I'm like, oh, okay, this has worked out really well for her. And she's also doing cookbooks. But yeah, there's a part of me that feels a little sad that now she's done this amazing cookbook about cooking for yourself at home. And it's like, look at the difference between that and what Anissa, her restaurant was. And she has a knee replacement too, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like titanium. And she showed me the scars like, holy hell. It's crazy. And she was back on the line right after she rehabilitated herself. She was in so much pain. She worked through, that woman worked through so much pain. Like, really. Um, and that restaurant was thankless, like just in terms of like the leaks and the th- and like the floods and it, yeah. Um, but yeah, she's someone. I mean, I don't. It's interesting because she's o- she's okay now. She's happy now. It's not like we found her like you know. No, but suffering. That's great. But it's still not okay. But yeah. had it been done correctly, and from her end, what more could she have done? Right. Right. Yeah. It got three stars. It was two stars. Then it get three stars, which had never been a two star restaurant by Grimes. Um, again, that's a perfect example of someone, a critic, not knowing what the fuck was going on. Yeah. And later got re-reviewed uh, by Wells, I think. Um, but had it been embraced properly. And yeah. again, she did win a lot of awards and she was respected, but not yeah. at the level that she should have gotten or that restaurant should have no. received. And again, a lot of this goes back to if she had had more restaurants, if Bar Q had been a success, if she had been able to get backing for more restaurants. I think about that with, you know, she never won a beard. She was nominated a lot. And you look at who gets beards and most of the people who get beards now have more than one restaurant, you know, because we're not talking about the Rising Star Awards. So, Again, it's someone who— You need media coverage to win. You need the media coverage, and you also need to be always doing something new. And the thing about Anissa was that she wanted to build an exemplary restaurant that was also a neighborhood restaurant. And so it's hard, too, to have that and to be constantly like, look at our new dish. Look at this is new. This is new. So that's another part of of it. But. So, so, yeah, I, I, I can see, and I get mad when I think about it, and I'm like, wait, why should we move forward? I think we really need to study what happened here yeah. so we don't repeat the same mistake. Yeah. Um, and I do think that if that was a more, if she was put on a different platform, which she deserved, yeah. I think that would have changed the conversation completely. Just like I think if WD-50 was embraced more wholeheartedly, the food that we're making in New York City as a whole is going to be very much different, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to that thing that I always think about in all professions. I think about it in in mine too, which is the don't the sort of the don't be too smart 
don't be too clever because people aren't going to get it and they're going to put you in a box. When you say people don't get it, like, isn't that the job of the food media to get it? Yes, but I mean, I, this is such a, this is a bigger conversation yes. in a sense, but I mean, we've gotten to a point, one of the things that's really, and one of the reasons I did Women on Food is that I feel like we've gotten to a point where we've decided that the people dictate what news is, and we've decided that the people dictate what, not just what's interesting, but we're so obsessed by what they're going to click on, what they're going to, if you think of, of news or content, whatever you want to call it, as a product, we're so worried about what the reader is going to buy that we have altered all of our coverage to make sure that they are buying as much as possible. Mm. So everything is about put a recipe on it. Everything is about the quick takeaway. Everything is about listicles. Everything is about, you know, what can we give you that is clickbait? What can we give you that, you know, what do you want to buy? And can we give that to you? And that, you know, people can kid themselves and say, no, 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 we're going out and trying to find the stories no one's found. But no, because you still need ad dollars and you're still thinking about what sells. I mean, the same way that that as a restaurateur, you, you have to think about, you know, well, who's going to come eat here and how do we make them happy? But, you know, if you really believe in journalism, if you're idealistic at all, there's a point where you have to say, it's actually our job to tell you guys what the news is and to make you understand that it's news and to make it interesting. And not to take the obvious choice, the low-hanging fruit, because we know you'll read it, and make that the news of the day. Easier said than done. Yeah, it's a lot easier because it, it does come back to money. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. And growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash chain. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. And now back to the show. So does it actually change? Because the reason why I think this is important from a chef's point of view, and I think we have all kinds of listeners. Yeah. Um, I'm always surprised that it's not cooking, right? People outside of the cooking world listen to this. But this is, again, for people in the industry, this is important for chefs to understand because it dictates, you know, what the food media understands and is allowing to accept literally dictates what kind of restaurants a chef wants to open up. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why I did Women on Food, and I and this is sort of kind of a, I don't know, parallel to what I was saying before about having different models, right? In the same way that 
I want to see chefs open restaurants that don't look like the restaurants we think of as restaurants with a capital R. And I want to see those restaurants be given equal footing. Um, I think we also have to start looking at different models for content and editorial. And I'm not talking about like online disruption. I mean, I didn't think women were being given a chance to write the way we should. I didn't think the content I wanted to read was out there. And so I had to create a space where we could have that, right? And I think that the book does a really good job of exposing a lot of ideas, but also different kinds of writing, different ways of looking at stories that we haven't before. And so, yeah, I look at it that way and think maybe the way we start to get people to change how they write, change the stories they decide to assign, is that we just have to start creating other models to compete with whatever mainstream media has been giving us. I'm going to have a hard time like articulating this then, but some of these restaurants, and this isn't just from women chefs, this is just anything, you know, whether you're sexuality, skin color, religion, anything that's not the establishment, which is ultimately a Eurocentric, like white version, anything that's not that, that people feel comfortable about. How do you change that conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason why Alex Lee, to me, was such an important, like vitally important figure to me yeah. when having thought about everything you're talking about from a culinary perspective, maybe the only way to change that is to do it better than them. Yeah, you know, I used to think that. I was I had this conversation recently with someone where my whole thing before used to be, oh, you have to infiltrate. You have to get into whatever the mainstream is, and then you have to subvert it. And I'm like, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? I wish it worked, but I think that the How kind of How can you be like, so conclusive that doesn't work? Because I think that you still somehow end up validating whatever that infrastructure is by being in it. And you still are, you still... When you get the validation, you're getting the validation from the very institution you were trying to fuck with. And I'm not sure that that really ends up sending the message. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I've really, I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind about it. I don't believe in it anymore. I think we just have to have other models. And the other thing I was thinking about when you said that about this whole Eurocentric thing is that the other problem we have is that we still seem to, and I don't know how you feel about this as a chef and a restaurateur. I will say this about the food media and and mainstream food media. We still seem to act as though our reader is white. And that's huge. You can go assign stories to as many people of color as you'd like. But if you're still imagining that your target reader is a white person and you're not really seeing beyond that, first of all, think of all the missed opportunities there are just in terms of like, again, think of this from the business perspective of like people, readers, right? Shoppers. But if you're just thinking that the your customer's white, yeah, we're going to be stuck with that whole Eurocentric situation. But there are all these other people in the world. There are all these other people in America. There are all these other people in New York City. Why aren't we thinking about not just having them be part of the conversation and having them decide what restaurants get built and what stories get told, but why aren't we imagining that the receivers of these things are not white? Well, maybe it's a, <clears throat> I want to say a concession. Yeah, but 
it's hard, I think. Let me, this may have nothing to do with what you just said, but I feel like in my head there's some, some, some line that goes through it and connects it. If restaurants that were not of the white establishment were being rewarded the same. So if there's a restaurant in Flushing, yeah. that's the best restaurant of a particular province in China, and it's the best in class, but it has Chinese decor, traditional Chinese service, which is completely opposite, and it gets a glowing one-star review in the New York Times, that's problematic to me. Yeah. So why should anyone feel like they should be uh, willing to continue to do that, right? It's the same problem when I, I get mad when someone said, oh, you can only do 25 and under, which is what I told Tim Carmen and Washington Post, and they changed it. It's like, maybe the concession has to come from everyone else. And until that happens, yeah. I think you have to be subversive. Yes, except then you're still just getting the one star. Like it's, you know, I, I, I'm going to take what you just said one step further because I think it's not just the star and the segregation of, of the columns. I actually think it's the way they're written. Mm. Um, and I've really thought about this a lot. I thought about it a lot for Women on Food. But if you look at, for example, let's look at the New York Times because it tends to be the standard. You know, you have Pete Wells' column, which is the official with a capital O restaurant review. And then you have Hungry City, which is Lagaya's column. And, and now she's been doing it a little less often. So you have, you have a few other different contributors. She's the most amazing writer. She's the most beautiful writer. But what's really interesting to me is that that those are not reviews. Those are not critical. So those tend to be the restaurants that are, we would call what, ethnic. They tend, they are always cheaper. They're not called that anymore. We now have, we call it Hungry City. But those- They just changed the title. Right. Those get really loving, beautiful, almost it's like a portrait of a restaurant. And she tells us what the food is, but they're never put into the context of, but is this the best version of that? Is this chef doing something that's really different? Is it any of the criteria that would be applied in a Pete Well restaurant review? I mean, actual criticism are not applied to that column. So you're already somehow saying that those restaurants are in some kind of different zone where they can't be assessed. I don't know if you would call it like a, a form of formalism or something, but they're not being assessed critically. So that kind of segregation, I actually think that's that's almost more problematic, and it's an extension of what you're talking yeah. about. Um, so yeah, that whole situation needs to be collapsed. And part of now, part of the problem with this too is, in order to properly review that Chinese restaurant in Flushing, you need to know so much about Chinese food and Chinese yes. restaurants because you need to be able to say. This is the best one, or it's not quite the best, but these things it does are so interesting that you need to go because they're changing something. How would you know that? Well, it's how do you feel about this? Because I know uh, every critic in America that works at an establishment, like an established newspaper, brings people that are so-called experts. Right. And that know it. How exactly? How can you write about something that you literally have no idea other than yeah. it, it is infuriating to me. Yeah, and I have a whole new theory about this now. Please. Dave, you're going to be like, no, Charlotte, you've gone too far. It's going to be a bridge too far for you. But I've kind of like, I was thinking about this the other day, like who would I, I would like to see as a restaurant critic? And I was suddenly like, well, what if, what if it wasn't about being an expert on food anymore? But what if it was even, right? My whole thing, again, to go back to fairness is whatever you do, do it the same for all types of restaurants, right? Like, 
I'm much more interested in people's ability to apply criticism with a capital C and to understand cultural criticism. So people are going to think I'm joking. I'm not. It is maybe an extreme example because he doesn't seem particularly interested in food, but I love reading Wesley Morris in the New York Times. He's great. He's amazing. Imagine him on food. And at that point, it stops being about an expert situation and it becomes more about how do I place this within the culture of how we live and how we eat. And I'm really starting to think that's more interesting to me, but it would also level the field because every restaurant would have to be taken sort of in its own terms and not put into that crazy- I don't think this is crazy at all. Ranking thing. This this is my new dream. I think it should happen. (laughs) And I do believe the next, it is the next evolution because we're, would you believe, would you agree that we're the, this current setup of obviously food journalism and media, but particularly criticism, is set in a it's like antiquated, right? Yes, yeah. And even when people try to sort of change it and make a statement, they're still playing within the same rules, right? There's there, and that's what I was saying before about how you still just kind of wind up supporting the establishment, and it's why I'm not so into the subverting. You know, subverting the model once you're in it, I think we need different models. That's why I'm like, yes, Wesley Morris, come review restaurants. Why do you see this and very few others, I think, see it? Is it because if you don't know Charlotte's background, she mm-hmm. is an art history major and you have a master's in it as well? Is I was an beca- English major and then decided <laughs> I wanted a PhD in art history, yes. which made no one happy. <laughs> Um, yeah. But you had to study all of this theory and criticism, yes. and it's given you yes. this reserve that you can draw upon when you think about food. Yes. It's also, honestly, I mean, if I was like, Dave, it's because I'm a Gemini. No, I'm, I am, um, I'm a very curious person, and I'm an associative thinker, which doesn't always serve me well. Um, and makes me prone to having lots of strange, like, creative ideas, but I— I'm someone who will see something happening in one place and then think about how I can graft it onto something that would seem completely unrelated to that. And like, I crack myself up doing this all the time, by the way. But I think that that has allowed me to have a certain flexibility of kind of seeing how things work. Um, Sometimes it means that I present ideas that are like very much not welcome (laughs) or are considered not, you know, sellable. Um, But anyway, yeah, I think... um, Part of the reason I can see it is that, yes, I've always been interested in critical theory, and it's why it's why I did the art history thing. And, I mean, I love art. It had less to do with the art and more to do with my really wanting to study critical theory. And you studying that, where did art go wrong in yeah. its, you know, understanding and representation of it to the world, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like if you can unlock that, then if it'll work out the same way, I feel, food. Yeah, I, it's also that again, like I think that's the heartbreak for me with food is that it's the most accessible thing, right? Like it's art, I get it sort of having a bad rap, right? Like people think of art as esoteric or you get that sort of high-low breakout where it's like people just think that art is fancy and it's, right? Like people think art is all fine dining, essentially. But think about food and how food is just this thing that we all have, that we all live with every day, that we all need, that we all love. I think it's that much more infuriating that it's taken so long to start breaking apart some of these stereotypes and, you know. Is the world of art currently in a better place than it was 
20 years ago? I feel I feel like I cannot speak to the world of art now because I really have I really when I left, you know, when I left grad school, it's very interesting because what I really wanted to do in grad school is also what I still want to do now, which is I've always been really interested in that overlap between pop culture and intellectualism. Oh, that's the thing that has, has always driven me. And, um, you know, what I realized in the academic land of art history was that academics are not that comfortable with pop culture. First of all, I don't think they like making a lot of pronouncements about what's happening now. I think they're afraid to be wrong and they'd rather wait and then look back on it and put it in a nice package. Um, but I also think they don't really like that high-low mix. Like, that's not so cool. I, I found it in grad school because I was always trying to do things that were a little bit, <laughs> a little bit songs in your, you know, <laughs> first thing I really thought I wanted to do was work in magazines. And I kind of felt like I had to make a choice. I felt like my choice was, well, you have to choose sort of this like academic intellectual life, which I loved. I loved like my, you know, the life of the mind situation there. But I also felt completely removed from the real world and pop culture, which I love. And it was like, you have to make a choice. And for me, I sort of looked at it as publishing or academia. And in publishing, you have to put the pop culture first and you kind of have to table the more sort of critical theory, intellectual, academic stuff. <laughs> in academia, you have to table the pop cultural stuff. But in either case, you're always going to try and slip a little bit of the other into it, you know? Um, and I don't know. I don't, so I can't speak to the art situation now because when I stepped away, I really stepped away and I went fully into publishing. And I also went through a phase where I almost couldn't go to museums and I couldn't look at art because I would have this weird reaction. First of all, I felt like I couldn't just enjoy it because I'd been trained to analyze everything. But I also think I felt a certain sadness about having left and maybe possibly that feeling of I failed because I didn't see it through, you know? So it took me a really long time and I do still now go to museums and I still go to galleries, but it kind of takes, it still takes a lot for me to do it. And I get like strangely emotional. I'll get like really overwhelmed sometimes. Did you love it too much? Yeah, I do, I think I loved it too much. Like I always joke that William Blake drove me to like nearly off a cliff because it remains my favorite artist. And I was trying to write some paper on it and I literally drove myself. Like, I don't know what happened. I just remember being up like really late and no longer knowing like what I was doing at all because I just overthought everything. Um, so I did, I, I did love it, but I didn't love the climate. You know, I didn't, it was very isolating. I thought what I thought was so strange about it was I thought here you are with a bunch of total nerds, right? And we all love this one thing. But at the end of the day, we're all supposed to find some aspect of it that no one else has studied before and study it. And that should make us all comrades because we're never going to be writing about the same thing. We're never going to be competing, which is like the opposite of, of media, right? Um, and yet everyone was so competitive, but you had all these like socially awkward nerds being political and competitive, which is, oof, that's bad. Like no one had any finesse. You just had these like really awkward, competitive people trying to play with the politics of academia. Um, Aren't you just describing the, the food world right now? Yes, but like they don't think of themselves as 
as smart as the academics who like look down on everyone else, right? But like, yes, it was it was a lot of that. And I just thought, I don't want to be around this. Like, I want to be in a place where people support each other. So what draws you to the food world? Because again, what you yeah. just said, you could impose pretty <laughs> accurately, uh, yeah. you know, what makes you love it so much? Well, it's first that I love... I was talking to Helen Rosner about this. We we were we were sort of kind of in a we're agreement about this, which is that we really love magazines. Like we love publishing, but we also love the physical magazine. We love like I would sit and read tables of contents. Like my whole thing was I just love how people put magazines together. I love that sort of creative thing where you're taking different things and making them all fit and that to me was like really, really exciting. And I'd also always loved writing and journalism because I liked telling stories and I'm a very curious person. And I liked finding things that people hadn't found and digging them out, which again, in academia, it's the same as doing research. I really like doing research. So there's actually a lot of overlap. And it was just that when I started thinking about really what I wanted to write about, what might be fun, I'd written, I had sort of I'd been focusing on design and entertaining. And once I finally went freelance, I was like, wow, I could write about anything now. And I thought, you know, I love food. I never thought to write about food because I always think you're supposed to write about something you studied because, you know, like the art history thing. Like I didn't study food, but I grew up immersed in food without even realizing it. I thought it'd be really fun to write about food. And I also thought to go back to that wanting to find the intersection between what was, you know, critical and intellectual and what was pop cultural. Like, isn't food the perfect, like, perfect vehicle for that? Isn't that exactly the place where you can take things that might seem really, really advanced or esoteric but actually aren't and bring them to people in a way that's actually totally digestible and accessible? Like, isn't it the perfect kind of, like, mashup medium? I don't know. That's what I thought. Yeah, I think <laughs> when I study your career and because I know you and we're friends, I think all you've really done is you're still in the art world. A little bit, yeah. It, it, all that's changed is food yeah. instead of a painting. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I think for me, it's because it's the mental work, right? It's the creative thinking. It's the critical thinking. It's the research. And you can take that and you really can apply that to anything. It just has to be a thing that you're really passionate about, you know? Um, and again, with food, I just, I think, or I thought you could reach more people. Um, back to your book, right? Which is ultimately why, getting better understanding why <laughs> Women on Food as an anthology happened is because you want to you want to express yourself and you want to create a platform because it wasn't didn't didn't it exist. It didn't exist. It was I was got I you know it's funny how everyone had a, their their own sort of like me too processing situation. My response to me too was we as journalists spend so much time and it's our job too. So I don't want this to sound like some martyrish situation. It's not, it's literally our job. We spend so much time focusing on what has happened to other people. We write about chefs. We, you know, we want to tell those stories. We want to find those stories and we want to expose them. And that is our job. The thing is, I had not really stopped. Maybe I didn't let myself stop to think. 
I don't really know, but I had not sat down and really thought about, well, how have I experienced sexism in my actual profession, in my field, within food media? What are some of the ways in which maybe I have experienced this and not really allowed myself to process it? And it wasn't like, are there bad men of food media? Yes, there are. And I think we know who they are. And it wasn't about that for me. For me, it was about the ways in which I had been made to feel small, the ways in which maybe I had stopped even pitching certain stories, the way that I felt that like there were certain things that I was going to be expected to do, and I felt really trapped by that. I started thinking, wow, if this is me, imagine how it is for so many other women. Imagine especially for women of color. It must be so much worse. Um, and I started to get I started to get really angry. And the anger doubled because I thought, oh my God, you know, the worst part of all this is that food was like the one editorial category women were given because no one wanted it. And they also thought it was just something for other women because we needed to cook, we needed recipes or whatever. And we built something. We built this genre of food writing, you know, and then I don't want to make it sound super dramatic and be like, oh, it got taken from us, but it kind of did got get taken from us. And I think the legacy of women in that space got reduced to sort of some nice little like Julia Child and Elizabeth David story. Um, and I just felt so mad about that. And, that, you know, I thought, well, what can I do? Yeah, how do I create the space? How do I give myself this, the freedom to do things that I've never gotten to do that I've wanted to do? And how do I do that for other women? And can we make a statement with that? Like, can we say, wow, look at what we could do if you would just let us. And let me just make that, you know? And it was, I didn't want to restrict it to just food media because I think that just would have been way too food insidery and not that interesting. Um, and so- it also allowed me to do that thing where we have interviews and we have all those question and answer things because you really get all of these different voices from across the food world in general. But it started with me wanting to do something for my own community in food media because if we don't cover what's happening to us, who would? Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Allbirds. Everyone loves a gift that they can feel good in and good about. And Allbirds are stylish, comfortable, and sustainable, so you can't go wrong. Allbirds Streamline Design is versatile, so you know you'll look great anytime you lace them up. They come in a wide range of colors inspired by nature and a variety of silhouettes to keep you looking your best in whatever situation you find yourself this holiday season. Ladies, the tree breezers are your new go-to flats. They will have you feeling like the bell of the ball at any holiday party. Meanwhile, the wool runners, which are made from ZQ certified merino wool, will help you stay warm while the mizzle collection, complete with puddle guard, will help you stay prepared through winter's unpredictable weather. I love my Albert's my brother last year for Christmas and my sister-in-law gave me my first pair and I love them so much that I've given them to everyone else in my family because they're so comfortable. It's like a new pair of feet and honestly, they're my like slippers at home too. I love them. Allbirds are the perfect gift to make the holidays a little less uncomfortable for everyone on your list. Give the gift of comfort this holiday season or get a pair for yourself at allbirds.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Buckley Dog Food. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients, and the same applies to pet food. I love cooking for my dog, but sometimes I just don't have the time, which is why I love Buckley Dog Food, because it's all about quality 
real ingredients. Their food only contains fresh meat and whole ingredients and never any rendered meat meals, which are the cheap way many pet foods spike protein levels in their food. Meat meal can contain terrible stuff, sort of gross, including meat from diseased animals, and they lower your dog's ability to digest that protein and get the nutrients they need. But Buckley's dry recipes have an average protein digestibility of over 90%, while industry average is around 70%. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or filler ingredients, just fresh meat and whole ingredients. My dog, Sevi is a very peculiar eater. He was a rescue, and he just had a hard time finding what he likes to eat. And when he does, we never let it go, and he loves his Buckley dog food. So it makes me very happy as an owner and as a chef. So go to buckleypet.com slash Chang and use the code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 20% off your first order. What a great deal. And learn about their dog food subscriptions. That's Buckley Pet, one word, B-U-C-K-L-E-Y-P-E-T dot com slash Chang and use the code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 20% off. And now, back to the show. The... Q and A's and sort of the the, the banter uh, of those questions, I think uh, everyone should read because you're seeing some unfiltered responses that I was surprised about. What were you surprised about? Um, the Q and A. How should I say this? The Q and A that talks about being complicit, the C word, mm. the one that you started, I thought was incredibly revealing. Um, particularly the one where uh, the anonymous chef said. I hate the fact that I have to say this, but the people that have been the most problematic have been women. Yeah. And I was like, fuck. And then I think about that. I was like, I, I can't, as a guy, I can't comment on that. No, you, you can't, you can't you, comment and that's on that. that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm like, yeah. wow, like, I want to know more about that. And, yeah. And, and not because I'm trying to single that out. It was such a stark contrast. And in, in, if you read the book, you're like, whoa. And it's on the left-hand side. It's like burned in my, my image now, in my mind. I'm like, Wow. Like, is that an anomaly? And what have we got wrong here? Or maybe that's just something, something. I don't know. That That is complicity in action for you. That is when the world is set up so that you are made to feel like there is only room for one of you. If that, the way that you then treat someone else like you is already set up in this really, I mean, it, it even goes to that whole issue of when, you know, of always wanting to to see women be rivals or, you know, like nemeses or whatever that is. That sort of women not treating each other well, that's set up by the infrastructure of patriarchy. Patriarchy runs on it. You know, patriarchy necessitates that we do that to each other on some level. And so then you see what that does to women. You see how they treat each other, and then you see how bad they feel about having behaved that way. And it just continues to keep everyone down and isolated. It's really why I want to write about complicity. It's the hardest thing to talk about because— You build up to that chapter. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. I have to say about that, I did not think people were going to answer that question. I had this idea in my head that I wanted to try and write about complicity, that it would be really hard, that I did not know how to, but that I felt like if we don't get past it, I don't— I kind of don't know how we can move forward together, all of us. And I and I think this especially about like just in general feminism, how white it's been and how 
we claim we want it to be more, you know, inclusive, but I see that still not quite working the way it's supposed to work. And I don't know, I just thought maybe if we could get past this complicity issue, we could start trying to build from it. Because I also is kind of corny as it sounds, when you do start to tease out complicity, you also start to kind of see how the system works in a way you hadn't before. Mm-hmm. I mean, like just like the deep levels of it, you know? So I, I thought I want to write about it. It's really hard to write about it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll ask the women and then see if it's something that they respond to. And like, maybe if they don't respond, then I don't have to write the essay, which seriously, I was kind of like, I'm, I usually am not afraid to write anything. I was terrified. Um, I, so I didn't really actually expect a lot of answers, and I certainly did not expect people to put their names on their answers. I thought they would be anonymous. And when I asked the question on the questionnaire, I said, if you please, if you want to be anonymous, like this is a, a I mean, anyone could have been anonymous at any time, but it was like, this is a question where if you need to be anonymous, like, you know, don't worry about it. I could not believe, I think I was so moved by the fact that so many women responded and that so many women put their names on it. I mean, that was just, that floored me. I had um, two days ago, a chef called me who's in the book just to tell me that she'd gotten the book and that, you know, she was really psyched about it. And she said, I feel bad now that I didn't put my name Hmm. on it. And I was like, you know. Um, So anyway, I, yeah. And then of course I I had to write the essay. I was like, oh God, now I have to write the essay. But so it wasn't, it wasn't so much meant to be a buildup, but I did feel like you needed that essay there to set everyone's answers in motion. And I just think it's so powerful when you read all of those things because you realize just how far complicity goes and you realize how many different kinds there are. And you also— I didn't didn't understand the kinds. I didn't know. There were some there that I was like, I never thought about that. To be honest with you, I never thought about how not talking about how much money I was made, how little money I accepted for projects, for example. I never thought about how, first of all, how doing that was a kind of complicity, which it is, but also how kind of keeping it to myself— was also a kind of complicity. Like, the, honestly, I had not, and it, it totally is. You know, it totally is. If one of us is willing to a- accept such a small amount of money, it, t- it tells the world that they can sh- they can pay any of us that little, you know? Like, that's awful. And it's worse because I'm white. And if I'm willing to accept that little, imagine then how much less they're going to try and pay a woman of color, you know, and then to not talk about it and let people assume that I'm being paid more. Like, the whole thing. I mean, that to me— completely tripped me out. And there were just other things that I didn't realize that women were carrying. And I just think carrying all of that's also really hard. And I do not want to make this into some like poor white women carrying their burden of complicity. But I do think you can behave badly when you're walking around feeling guilty or when you haven't dealt with some of your own bad behavior. So, yeah. Um, If you're in this industry and and uh, it it behooves you to see other perspectives. So I do think you should buy it, not because of that, because it's a good book and it's good writing and it's different viewpoints. But um, if we're going to make this industry better, and there's a lot of dudes that are still in positions of leadership, it's a, it's a, it's imperative that you see these perspectives. Yeah, and I, I mean, I want men in food media to read it. You know, similarly, the same way you you want male chefs to read it. Like, I'm like, oh, I want the men in my industry to read it, too. You know, I think every 
white critic should read Osai Endelin's essay. I think actually every person should read Osai Endelin's essay. Um, but I think every white critic needs to read that. I mean, that piece just, that blows me away. Um, another thing, this is a narcissistic uh, <laughs> comment. <laughs> I was surprised that I could see that I feel like a lot of people are angry at me. Yeah. <laughs> Someone just asked me this question. They, I, this is a real, a really interesting point. I, I don't know if it's like honestly, I don't know if it's you. They, they said, oh, you know, someone just asked me that, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Dave Chang kept being singled out, and you know, why do you think that is? Why do you think you know women, you know, have such a strong feeling about them? And I. I don't actually know if it's personal. I think it's what you represent. My my take on it is that it's almost like you guys serve as bookends for a moment or a movement, which is that sort of ascension of bro culture as a dominant pop cultural trope. And I think that that's and something you've been critical about, Lucky Peach, and yes. the broiness of the whole thing, all of it. And and I, but I also think that. A lot of that isn't necessarily about a, a specific person, but when you, I mean, look, Anthony Bourdain before before he died had already apologized for what he had created with Kitchen Confidential. So I don't even know if it's about him personally. It's just that what that book did and what it set in motion. And then as we know, the more visible you are, the more opportunities you're given to be visible. So you become representatives for a thing. So he got to do all of his travel shows, which inadvertently promoted that bro culture because here we have this guy who's like such a guy. He's like this white man going and adventuring into all of these other places and talking about their cultures and he's drinking with them and he's eating with them. And so it kind of became an extension of that, even though that's not what he was trying to do at all. And then you look at you and your rise and yes, and Lucky Peach and also, but now you're just, you're so visible. So you become the example of success, of of the success of that culture, right? So I don't know how much of it is people being angry, particularly at you as a person. I think it's more this idea of what you represent and then this idea of you, because you're visible, you just keep getting to do more things. And that's a general problem. It's like why it's like this strange trickle-down thing where it's like the people who are visible just keep getting stuff. And then it's only through them that maybe some other people get some stuff, you know? It's just how it works. It shouldn't work that way. But yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. Some of those w- women could actually could actually just like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but what I took from it was more this, of, of this kind of idea of, of, a rep, of representing you know, it's weird to read. We were like, "Fuck!" Like, yeah. <laughs> wow, they hate my guts. Like, yeah. Wow, I, it's weird. I, maybe because I know you, so I'm a, a bit defensive. But like, I didn't see it as hating you. I, I saw it as. But I can understand yeah. that. Like, we started off talking about the gods of food, and it's interesting when that happened. The criticism was instant. Yeah. Um, and it just shows you how not ready the food world was to accept that criticism because yeah. it still happened and. It was, while it was like vocal, it wasn't as loud as it could have and should have been. And it still is to this day a a case study as to what not to do. But as someone that was on the cover of it with Renee Redzepi and Alex Atala, I'm not going to mansplain it, but I was like, we didn't know. Yeah. We didn't know what the the cover was going to be. We didn't know we were going to be on a cover. But here's the thing that I do go back to, and I think— 
to her credit, because as you know, I'm not feeling like supporting her now, but to her credit, I think Gabrielle Hamilton was the one who said that. What could have happened and didn't happen was that men did not come forward and say, this sucks. Like, you could have said, I'm on the cover, and I'm psyched I'm on the cover, but this sucks. I was scared. Yeah. I was, I'll be honest, I was scared. I was like, because I was, I was like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. I didn't know. I thought, hey, time wants to do this. And you're like, and with your friends, I was like, yeah, they're my friends. And I'm learning, man, I am a bro. And I'm a recovering bro. Well, I'm just, what am I supposed to do <laughs> about that? Well, and, and, yeah. and, and I was like, fuck. And, and I didn't want to say anything. magazine, right? Yeah. yeah. But I think. It's not an excuse. No, it's not. But I feel like that could have actually, that could have been a difference maker just in terms of like pushing that conversation farther. If the men on the cover, but also men, male chefs, male editors, like if people had started to try and come forward so that it hadn't just been a few women being like, this is an outrage. And again, as usual, the same women were asked to speak about it. So it just created this weird little like, you know, oh, it's the group of angry chef women again about this thing, stamping their feet and maybe they're right. But like it didn't, it should have become some kind of a movement, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I do think that, I do think that's the difference is that yes, this needs to be led by women because we should be in charge and have the power, but we need support of men to say, yeah, it's fucked up. And also to say, we want you to have the opportunities. Let let us help you get those opportunities. Like, you know, yeah. yeah and, <laughs> you know, this is almost like 10 years after the fact now. Jeez. Um, I can't go back in time and do exactly what you said. I should have been— hey, I'm on this fucking thing, and you guys are all right. Uh, I'm embarrassed to be associated with it. I didn't do that. Yeah. Um, but I, hopefully we're living in a world where we can accept people making mistakes, yeah. not being the best versions of themselves. And, and also I- accept the fear that you have when you're just starting to make it and you're scared that it could be taken away, which I think, too, you know, I feel like now— Funnily enough, chefs have more control over the media than they did before. But if we are going back 10 years, I don't know how much you felt, like, power you felt you had over what coverage you got. I didn't have the perspective. Yeah. How could—I just—I can't go back in time. All I can yeah. say is I'm, I wish I had the wisdom and the maturity. I think all of us on that cover yeah. would be like, hey, you know what? This is ridiculous. Uh, can I get an understanding <laughs> of what your story is? What are you writing about? Yeah. You know, like— I have to remind myself that, yeah, we are visible and these are things that can have serious repercussions. And I got to do a better job of asking, what is this in context to? But I didn't. It was like, oh, get a hang out. Yeah. And, and do this. And Fine. be on the cover of yeah. Time. But we didn't. Yeah. But I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. It was more like just to hang out. And yeah. it was like, oh, hang out with your friends. And I didn't have an understanding. Yeah. And I, I think I have a better understanding. It's not perfect now. No, but it's, but I do, I do. I mean, I think that thank God there have been conversations, many more conversations since then. You know, we're still a long way from it. But I, again, I think the reason we're a long way from it is more to do with systemic stuff and the fact that we're dealing with the same systems and the same people in charge of those systems and deciding who their audience is, you know. And until that gets broken down, until we prove that other audiences are viable 
and that putting other people in charge <laughs> makes a difference and can sometimes actually turn out to give you a better product, even though it's different, you know, that's kind of where it's at. So this is a work in progress. It's totally a work in progress. You know, it's like, I don't know. I made a dinky anthology. It's pretty hard to sell anthologies. Like we, it, we, it, there's a lot farther everyone has to go with all of this stuff, you know. Um, one thing that I don't think you get enough credit for uh, is not this entire conversation that we've just had, but for having a nose about baked goods that no <laughs> <Yeah>. one really. <laughs> you are you are like. Uh, the Jimmy Iovine of baked goods. Oh my God, this is the best compliment. Right? Like, <laughs> you are. I love them. <laughs> you know, it's like Quincy Jones of baked goods. Like you just have a, a a a taste for where something should be and where it's going, and it's anything that's baked. Really, you are on another planet. How do I'm you- fully selfish. I'm just like this is what I like. <laughs> I mean, part it, it, it's funny because for a long time, I really, I covered a lot of pastry chefs. And part of it was because I was like, no one writes about the pastry chefs. It's not fair. But I mean, would I have noticed that if I wasn't someone who spent most of my time thinking about what the next baked good I was going to eat was? Maybe not. I, yeah. It's on another level of your, <laughs> your <clears throat> understanding of baked sweets, anything baked, <laughs> That that is, I don't even know how you. For example, like the lottery. Um, what's that thing that's frozen that you freeze to eat? Wait, the the what? The, I, think, I mean, the, the there's that. Uh, fuck, it's like the sweet croissant thing that's laminated, but it's. Pressed. Oh my god, the one I brought to you guys. Yeah. Oh my god, but oh, you can only eat it frozen. Egg, yeah. Pa- no, you don't have to eat it frozen. But you but even knew that it's good frozen. It's good frozen. The fact that I you know that. So that's my favorite pastry. People always ask that. My that's my favorite pastry is the palmier. And by the way, I don't understand why people in New York don't make it. Well, there's like a whole I'm sidebar conversation. You, the fact that you know <laughs> that at that place, that version means you're a sicko. <laughs> I am a sicko. And I will say, like, my my family, actually, we all love those homies. So if you go to my parents' house, there's usually one in the freezer, too. And if you eat the one in their freezer and they find out, like, bad things come. You secretly have like. produced baking <laughs> movements in America. Like, we have Roy Schwarzbell yeah, yeah. on a podcast. We yeah. haven't released it. Or by the time this has— it, uh, we have, Anyway, Roy said the first person that ever wrote about him was you. I did. I own it. Oh my God, that's so true. I did. Yeah, I forget I was like, sometimes. How the fuck? When he said that, I was like, how the fuck? <laughs> the of course it's Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just like, I don't know. I That really just comes you from a real love the, 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 of. An <laughs> artist that was doing something so obscure. Yeah. And you're like. I just, I love it. And you know what? And I like to bake. Like the whole thing, it's just, it just is. I can't explain it to you. I get very excited Do about it. Do you think it. that you will ever open a pastry shop? No, I don't, I don't think that I have the, I don't think I'm wired for that kind of life. I think that you are. No, actually. I think someone could <laughs> hire me to help come up with the concept and build the menu. But I am, because I get so easily bored that gift, because I really do, I admire it so much in people. Like the the way that I was discussing this actually with Daniela Galarza recently, and I was saying how who's a trained pastry chef? Yes, and and that a lot of times I get asked to write stories. I get asked to write stories sometimes about a very technical pastry thing, 
and provide a recipe. And I will be like, you know, you should ask Daniela to do that. I, I'm a technician about my writing. I really sit down and figure out how I want to write something and then I hone it and like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a writer, but I'm not a technician as a baker. I am improvisational. That's why you should open a bakery But shop. But I think in order for a bakery to succeed, you know, it has to be consistent. Like the thing has to be, the, no, that cookie has to be the cookie dis- every time. I disagree with you. So I, I'm not sure I could do that. Well, we'll yeah. talk about this later. I'm going to encourage Charlotte to open up her own bakery. Do you have anything else you want to talk about or plug? I mean, Are you going on, really? on a book tour at all? I am. I'm going on a book tour. Um, we're still figuring out the, we're adding to it. So I'm doing, I have a whole bunch of events in New York um, because I decided to make extra work for myself. We're doing all of these panel conversations and each one's different. Each one ta- picks up on a different theme of the book. So, and I'll, I'll be posting those on like social media and bugging everyone. But, um, and then I'm going to San Francisco and LA. Um, and then I'm going to London I'm really excited about. And then I'm going to do um, DC and then we're tacking on Boston and Toronto and I think eventually Detroit. So, so yes, a book tour. A book tour, yes. It's <laughs> so, happening. So check out Charlotte's <laughs> book, Woman on Food, and her all her other books, cookbooks and regular, uh, the, the Skirt Steak book, which is fantastic, even though she is critical of it. Um, buy it uh, anywhere you buy your books hopefully independent bookstore thank you awesome thank you to have for you. having of me of course this is honestly just to hang out with you is, <laughs> I always love it thank you Charlotte well that was my conversation with the great Charlotte Druckman you should check out her book Women on Food um, I want to get to a Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question. You can keep on sending them in at Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com, or you can give us five stars on iTunes and ask us a question, and I will answer it. This one comes from Michael. He writes, I just recently opened a second location of my restaurant out of state. I'm helping out the chefs and working to teach all staff, including FOH, how we like to run things and set standards for everyone to work toward. As someone who operates multiple restaurants, what were your challenges when you jumped having one to two restaurants? Any advice you can give would be greatly appreciated. Michael, I get this question a lot from my peer group, and I'm happy to give you the same answer I give to everyone else. First and foremost, if you think that the things that have made you successful at one restaurant will even remotely apply to the second one, it is not going to happen. There should be no correlation, even if you're opening up sort of an identical clone of your first restaurant, that should work because it's a different real estate, it's different clientele maybe, it's a different part of town, you have different employees, and there's different responsibilities because now you have something that has been successful enough for your, your career to open up a second restaurant. So I think the biggest problem I see and that I went through myself was thinking that the success is somehow going to happen. And I don't know I would call that hubris, but... What you've learned to become successful is just sort of in and of itself. It's its own unique thing. And it's tempting, incredibly tempting to apply all the things you've learned in your first restaurant to your second restaurant. And while some things may be applicable as a whole, I think that's a slippery slope and something I would say be careful of. And it's almost like confirmation bias. 
in some degree. So I would just highly suggest that you be skeptical of anything that worked for you in your first restaurant and look at everything in your second restaurant with open eyes and open ears and be incredibly thoughtful and think critically as to why and how things should be. The second thing, and this is a short list that I give anyone, that's pretty much it, right? Don't think that whatever fucking worked for you is going to work again ever because it's not. Maybe sometimes. The second thing, and it's really two pieces of advice. If you are going to open up a second restaurant, your goal should be this. Regardless of where it is, whether it's a five-minute walk or a five-hour drive, your goal should be that when you focus on your second restaurant, that you have operations and culture and a moral compass in place. And this is going to be very hard, but this has been my goal. And oftentimes we've been not successful in getting there. The goal is this. When you open up your second restaurant, the first restaurant should operate better without you. That whoever is running it, the team you put in place, they are more focused, more energized, and have more going on without you. That's crazy, right? But it should be inspirational, I think, because if you have to be at both places at once, it's not likely that either will be successful. A lot of times a second restaurant causes the first restaurant to do a little bit more poorly because of growing pains. Be the exception to the rule and imagine how you can leave that restaurant and come back without having to be part of the schedule. If you have that mindset that you can be replaced, something that I talked to Marguerite Mariscal about when she was on this podcast as well, the idea that you should look at everything you do in whatever position you have in a restaurant to replace yourself. And it's not just replacing yourself so you don't have to do the work. You replace yourself so whoever is replacing you does a much better job than you. And if you have that mindset, that's the kind of growth and culture that will make the second restaurant very successful, in my opinion. That's the shit that you should copy. The culture is what is most important. And you have to inoculate in any which way you can. And me being a dumbass, I've made every mistake possible. And I will continue to make mistakes where you think that what worked for you is sort of universal. And that's not always the case. But what is universal is a winning culture, a culture of accountability, of teamwork, of honesty, quite frankly, and not wanting to let someone else down. And if you can have that there at a high level when you're not there, that's the goal. And that's something that I strive for still to this day. And as hard as it is, that's always going to be my goal uh, for all the operations that we open up. And whatever I just told you, Michael, is the same information I give to my closest friends and people that ask me. And it's the same shit that I got to follow myself. So I wish you the best of luck. Congratulations on your success. And I hope store number two is just going to crush. Well, guys, I have rambled on long enough. Please give us five stars, however you rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Stay tuned next week. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Bye.